Hey guys, happy Friday and welcome to Relatable. Today we are going to talk first about Title 10 and Planned Parenthood. This is actually a Q&A episode, but this is one of the questions that I received and since it is relevant to what has happened this week, I want to talk about it. But first, I want to tell you guys about Simply Safe. So I don't know if you know this or not, but most break-ins actually happen in the middle of the day. So between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., not in the middle of the night like you might typically think. Uh, what's crazy is that only one in five homes have home security, maybe because most companies really don't make it easy. It's complicated, it's expensive, but that is why Simply Safe is a top choice for so many people. Uh, Simply Safe protects your entire home, every window every room door with 24 seven monitoring for just a fraction of the cost. Uh, there is no contract. There are no hidden fees. There is no fine print. Uh, it's designed to blend right into your home. So no wires, no drilling doesn't have to look ugly just because you want to be safe. Uh, prices are always fair. They are always honest. You've got around the clock monitoring just $15 a month, uh, which is awesome. So visit simplysafe.com slash alley that is simply uh, s-i-m-p-l-i safe.com slash alley you will get free shipping with a 60-day risk-free trial you really don't have anything to lose so go now be sure you go to simply safe.com slash alley so they know that i sent you that is simply safe.com slash alley so now we are going to answer the first question that i received and that is title 10 and planned parenthood so title 10 if you don't know is a federal program that was established in 1970 under Richard Nixon to help low-income people access contraception. It was actually implemented uh, with pretty sinister motives, if you look into it, and they were to prevent as many poor people as possible from procreating. That is true. You can look that up. It's kind of crazy for us to think about now. Uh, they actually thought that that was a good thing and would help society. So Title X funds, about $286 million per year, uh, uh, is sent to or are sent to health centers that provide these kinds of family planning services, and this includes Planned Parenthood centers. So Planned Parenthood typically receives about $60 million per year of Title X funds. They receive millions of dollars from Medicaid reimbursements to each year. Uh, Title X money technically is not allowed to be used to directly fund abortions, although we know that money is fungible. So by giving any amount to Planned Parenthood, we are funding abortion with our tax dollars. That's what pro-lifers have been saying for a very long time. That's what we're talking about. And that's why we say uh, to defund Planned Parenthood. So the Trump administration actually took a step to ensure that that uh, is actually happening, that these federal dollars are not funding abortion. Uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal. The rule called for clinics that received federal family planning funding to physically separate their abortion services in a separate building from all other services and not to refer patients for abortions. So the Trump administration says to Planned Parenthood, look, you can keep receiving these Title X funds, but you've got to fully separate your abortion services and you cannot make abortion referrals. Pretty simple. You can talk about all the options. They can still talk about abortion. So their physicians can still talk about abortion. They can talk about it as an option. Uh, they can talk about what abortion is, but they cannot actively encourage a patient to go and get an abortion. So what does Planned Parenthood do with this new rule that is being implemented? They reject 
The Title X funds the $60 million a year that are going to their various clinics. They reject these funds because of this, which shows us just how desperately, in case we didn't know, just how obsessively they want to be able to encourage women to abort their children, uh, that they would reject millions of dollars in favor of more abortions, probably putting women that actually go there for health care services at a disadvantage. Uh, this is from National Review. This is a quote. This isn't the first time the group has displayed recalcitrance. That's a great word. Recalcitrance on this question. In the spring of 2017, Ivanka Trump met with then Planned Parenthood president Cecile Richards and suggested compromise. Um, suggested compromise. Planned Parenthood should split into two financially distinct groups, one with a smaller arm to provide abortions and the other to provide women's health care, the latter of which could retain government funding. According to a New York Times report, Richards refused. Planned Parenthood officials said that they thought Miss Trump's advice was naive, failing to understand how central reproductive choice was to the group's mission. How central reproductive choice, read, abortion was to the group's mission. So what we already knew is drastically confirmed by this decision by Planned Parenthood that it is an abortion provider who also happens to provide a few other services so that they can call themselves a healthcare center. And what you're going to hear in the news from Planned Parenthood spokespeople, uh, that includes many pundits in the left-wing media, they are going to say that the Trump administration uh, forced Planned Parenthood out of the Title X program and robbed millions of underprivileged women from healthcare. That is not true. Planned Parenthood made a decision. They made a calculated decision to reject to reject $60 million a year of plan of uh, Title X funds because they wanted to be able to encourage women to have abortions. They didn't want to financially and physically separate their abortion services from the other services that they provide. That is a decision that they made because, as Cecile Richards has said, as they have said many times before, abortion is central to what they do. Now, it's interesting because when you talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, they'll say, well, abortion is only 3%. Only 3% of the services that we provide, we do all these other kinds of services for women. And so if you defund Planned Parenthood, you're actually taking away the health care uh, from all of these impoverished women. Well, if it's only 3% of what you do, if it's that insignificant, if it's such a small slice of the pie, then it really shouldn't be that big of a deal for you not to make abortion referrals and for you to financially and physically separate your abortion services from the other services that you provide. It shouldn't be that big of a deal, right? But apparently it is. And they've made that known. I mean, they fired their uh, last CEO, their president and CEO, Leanna Wynn, because she wasn't uh, she wasn't passionate enough about abortion from a political standpoint. Abortion is all they do. The slaughtering of unborn children is their central mission. I shouldn't say that's all they do because apparently they do some other services here and there, but it is central to who they are. They are an abortion mill, and this is... Um, this is their top priority. Actually, it's all of their priorities as they make very clear. So don't listen to the media and to the narrative that says that, you know, this is this is a racist move by the Trump administration to take health care away from women. Planned Parenthood made a decision to take health care away from women because they love abortion so much. Okay, next question. What do you think of Rashida Tlaib and Omar's scandal with Israel? So we know that Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are anti-Semitic. They 
don't like to admit that themselves, of course, because that wouldn't be politically savvy. But uh, they hate Israel. They are supportive of groups that advocate for the complete destruction and obliteration of Israel. And they were meant to uh, visit the nation. But on their itinerary, they were meeting with these groups that um, are pro-terrorist groups. They're for the annihilation of the state of Israel. And so Israel said, you know what? We're not we're not really keen on representatives from another country who want to see our destruction coming and visiting us, which I think is totally their prerogative. Now, whether it's going to pay off for them politically or not, I'm not sure. They actually told Rashida Tlaib, hey, you can come and visit your grandmother, but you can't come and do all of these things that you were going to do on your original trip with Ilhan Omar that was basically uh, meeting exclusively with groups that were advocating for our annihilation. I think that's totally uh, their prerogative. Next question, status of my book. Book is going well. I took a little break from writing after I had the baby girl. And so I'm getting back into it now. The final version should be finished soon. And it's coming out next year, tentatively April 2020. But it could be a little bit earlier than that. I'm not totally sure. But you guys are going to love it. If you like this podcast even a little bit, you're going to love this book. It's a very personal book. I talk a lot about my life and just my journey in faith. But um, it's very relevant. It's very practical. It's pushing against the trendy narcissism that we see so central to our society. You guys are really going to like it. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited for it. I'll be talking about it more in the coming months. Someone also asked me if I'll go on a book tour. I'm sure I will. I don't know what that's going to look like right now. I'm not in charge of the PR for my book and my book tour. But uh, yes, I'm sure I'm going on some sort of book tour. And of course, I will keep you guys updated because I'd love to meet as many of you as possible. Uh, Favorite thing about motherhood so far? Hmm, that's a good question. It's hard to pick just one thing. I mean, I love... I love it all. I love being a mom. I've always wanted to be a mom. I loved babysitting when I was younger. I loved, you know, I've always loved being around kids and playing with kids. I've always wanted to be a mom. And it's everything that I thought it would be, but it's a lot more than what I thought it would be because you really can't, you just don't know fully what to expect. I have 10 or 11. I can't even keep track now. I think I have 11 nieces and nephews. So I've been around a lot of little kids for a long time and I love them all. And you can kind of see from your in-laws or your siblings relationship with their kids, what it's going to be like, but you really just can't fully know the joy of parenting and the hardship, or I don't want to say hardship, but the difficulty of parenting. You can't even know that until you have kids for yourself. Um, I think one of the things that I love the most, just like a simple joy that I have, is waking up in the morning. And when she she's typically the one waking me up in the morning, not because she's crying, but when she wakes up, she basically starts talking. I mean, you know how newborns are. They're like, they're like grunting and they're cooing and they're kind of whining just a little bit. I mean, they just make a lot of noise. My favorite thing is to like look in her bassinet and she's just looking around. She just looks so cute. She looks so cute all of the time, but she looks so cute in the morning when she's just kind of hanging out and figuring out that it's daytime and what's going on in the world. That's probably one of my one of my favorite things, but I love it all. I just love the little moments throughout the day. Now, it's difficult when she only takes like 20 minute naps uh, throughout the day. And um, I feel like, okay, 
all I'm doing all day is basically watching her and I feel like I can't get up to eat or do anything. Of course, that's hard, but it's all incredibly worth it. And it's also just really fun. Whenever I'm doing something else, like recording this podcast and uh, my husband's with her right now, all I want to do is go back and just kiss her little face. Um, Next question, how often do you pray? Well, I would say that it's not, well, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. I I would say I don't have distinguished necessarily times within the day, except for in the morning that I pray, but I would say that I do pray throughout the day. I can't say that I pray every single second of the day because I'm doing other things and maybe I should be praying more, but I certainly pray multiple times throughout the day. It's more just kind of a flowing out of either gratitude or anxious thoughts or just requests that I have, um, that's happening pretty, pretty constantly. I have a lot of things that I'm thinking about, a lot of things that I'm worried about, also a lot of things that I'm grateful for, a lot of things that I have to ask forgiveness for. So I don't think I could fit all of that into just like one 30 minute or 10 minute time a day. Like I really kind of have to stretch it out throughout my day to fit all of the things in. Um, What should today's church be more proactive about than it is now? I think Actually, I rewrote this down. I think it it said should be more proactive in talking about than it is now. And that is theology. The church does a terrible job. I know that sounds crazy. Like a church doesn't talk about theology, but actually, no. Churches don't talk about theology very much. I would say some of the most popular churches today hardly talk about theology. That's certainly not true of every popular pastor. There are plenty of popular and even so-called celebrity pastors that do talk about theology and do a good job of talking about theology. But I would say, for the most part, the um, churches and the people that young Christians seem to be following today don't talk about theology at all. They'll take some verses, they'll make some kind of clever analogy, and they will put you into the narrative of the Bible, and then they will say, okay, this is what you are supposed to take from this, and you should apply this today. You are David, you slay Goliath, whatever it is. And that's not theology. That's very shallow. It's very superficial. That doesn't allow someone to walk away and actually say, wow, God is good, or wow, God is powerful, or wow, God is holy. It has them walk away and say, okay, these are the little steps that I can take and I can apply it to my life today, which isn't necessarily always bad, but it doesn't give people a better knowledge of God and a better awe of his character. That's what I worry about coming from the pulpit is that we don't learn how to study the Bible. We don't really learn what the Bible says. We don't really learn about the nature of God. We are learning more about the nature of ourselves and who God is in relation to us rather than who we are in relation to God, if that makes any sense. So I would like to see pastors talk about theology a little bit more and how, for example, how we understand the Trinity or how we uh, understand certain characteristics of the Bible or certain characteristics of God that are difficult to understand. I think pastors from the pulpit should be walking us through those things so that we're armed, so that we better understand what's going on when we're reading scripture for ourselves. I don't think that pastors do that very well. I also think that pastors should better and be less afraid or they should better talk about and be less afraid to talk about 
politics and what's going on in society, cultural trends. That's not to say that pastors need to be Republican or Democrat or that they necessarily need to make a certain policy stance clear from the pulpit. I don't think that, but I think that they should be unafraid to talk about gay marriage, for example. They should be unafraid to talk about abortion. They should be unafraid to even talk about the redistribution of wealth. What does the Bible have to say about these things? If we're not getting that from our pastor and we're instead getting that from an Instagram influencer or even this podcast, I'm not sure that that's a good thing. I think that we should be getting that knowledge and getting that wisdom primarily from our church leaders, and we're not. Pastors are too scared to talk about politics. They're too scared to talk about cultural trends. They don't want to push people away. But we should be getting that from the person who is shepherding our church community. Like they should be the ones imparting wisdom according to what God's word says about what's going on in the world so that we can be equipped when we leave the church to, uh, to be able to confront deceit. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I would say um, I would say that a lot of pastors are just scared to do that. And of course, talk about sin. I think that we don't uh, enough talk about the holiness of God and the absolute depravity of human beings and how needy we are for salvation. But instead, we kind of talk about like, okay, human beings, we're pretty awesome. And God thinks we're pretty awesome. And he wants to tell us that we're awesome. And everyone should feel good once they leave church. I'm not really sure that that is what, according to the book of Acts, we are supposed to be doing when we're preaching to people. Next question. Uh, what do you think about the show, The Family, on Netflix? Well, I have been asked this so many times. So I started watching The Family this week on Netflix, but I'm only a little ways through the first episode. You guys didn't tell me that these episodes were really long and really heavy. So I'm not totally sure what I think yet. I'm a little bit confused. I'm a little bit confused. But like I said, I'm only a little ways into the first episode. And so I can't give you a full analysis of everything, but I will when I can. It's really fascinating. I just am not sure that I believe that it's really happening. If you haven't watched The Family on Netflix, maybe everyone who's listening should watch it. And then we can all talk about it together and we can all analyze it together. Okay, next question. Uh, have you ever had anyone change from pro-choice to pro-life? And the answer is yes. I actually get emails and comments and messages pretty often on this. I would say more than any anything else. There are two things that I get feedback on, this kind of really awesome positive feedback that, hey, you changed how I thought about this. And that is a... Um, I hear that people's minds have changed about Protestantism and predestination and all of that. And then I would say even more than that, I get a lot of people saying that their minds have been changed on um, abortion. Now, that's not to say that I am the sole person that has changed their mind. In fact, I would give all credit to the Holy Spirit, but also they've probably heard a lot of other arguments leading up to the podcast that they've listened to from me. And so I certainly don't take credit for changing people's minds wholesale on the topic of abortion. But yes, um, I have I have seen and heard minds change on that because I think that people are so used to hearing misinformation about abortion that really all you have to do is tell them the truth. One, tell them what abortion is. Most people can't even stomach the description of an abortion. Uh, I would say even early, early stage abortions, but especially late term abortions, when people realize what you're doing, 
what an abortion actually is, that it's not just um, getting a clump of cells out of your body or removing a tumor, that you're actually dismembering a child. It's very hard for any person with any kind of moral inclination whatsoever to say, yeah, I support the choice for that. Yeah, I probably think that's a good thing for society. It's really hard for people to justify that when they realize what it is. You talk to them about the reality of fetal development in the womb. You talk to them about when unborn children feel pain. Uh, you show them pictures of unborn children at certain stages of gestation. I've showed uh, the sonogram picture of my daughter at just 11 and a half weeks gestation. I mean, that's a fully formed baby. Of course, they have more time that they need to grow and develop, but that's a fully formed baby with arms and legs and a head and a mouth and a heart and lungs and all of that. And they're moving around inside the womb at just 11 and a half weeks. That's the first trimester. That is the trimester in which most people say, oh yeah, we should be able to abort children uh, in the first trimester. Well, you're talking about a fully formed, that has yet to fully develop, but a fully formed baby with limbs and a brain and DNA. Of course, they have DNA from conception. And so I think talking to them about the reality of pregnancy, the reality of life, the scientific reality of what life inside the womb is, and then talking to them very graphically about what abortion is. And then I think asking people why. So what is your justification for being able to poison or dismember or stop the heartbeat of a child inside the womb? What's your justification for that? Is it finances? Is it convenience? Is it the circumstances surrounding their conception? Okay, well, in what other circumstance besides when you're talking about a child inside the womb and what other circumstances killing someone based on convenience or finances or the circumstances surrounding their conception? Okay, when else do we call murder choice? Is it just because they're inside the womb? It's kind of crazy to justify murder based on a location. Um, is it because they're small? Well, it's really weird to justify murder based on someone's size. Is it because they're underdeveloped? Well, it's really weird to justify murder based on someone's lack of development. And so when you try to push people into justifying the brutal murder of a baby, they kind of either get really uncomfortable and defensive and they just don't think about it anymore or they realize there's really no moral justification for it and they have been duped by the abortion industry, which brings in millions of dollars every year. Okay, a few more questions. Uh, what do you say to people that say Jesus was a liberal? So when you get questions like this that are only meant to stump you, not actually meant to have any kind of productive dialogue at all, uh, something that I'd like to do is to turn the question back around on them or ask them a question. Well, what do you mean that Jesus was a liberal? Can you point me to the verses that show you that Jesus is a liberal? And what do you mean by liberal? Like, let's look at scripture and let's actually talk about this. I, I would like to know your position a little bit more clearly. Why do you say that Jesus was a liberal? There's something that social justice advocates hate to do, and that is define their terms or clarify their question. They will tell you to Google it because they don't actually know. They probably read this question on it or they saw, um, this statement on a meme or heard it on the internet or saw their favorite Insta Instagram influencer like Glennon Doyle say this and uh, they're repeating it to you not thinking that you are actually going to make them explain a little bit more what they mean. So I would ask them to explain what they mean by that. If they can point you to the passages that show that Jesus was a progressive 
then you're able to talk about that. But of course, we know if you read the Bible at all, if you read the Gospels at all, that Jesus wasn't a progressive, that in fact, uh, if Jesus is God, which we know that he is, then the entirety of the Bible, which we know is God is God breathed, is also Jesus's word, Jesus's stance, Jesus's position on things. So that means his position on sexuality, on gender, on marriage, on the redistribution of wealth, all of the things that the Bible is very clear about, those are Jesus's positions too. So I would really like to know what this person means when they say that Jesus was a liberal, because I haven't seen any evidence whatsoever in the Bible for that. Um, are you considered the religious zealot in your family? How do you deal? No, I'm, I'm not considered the religious zealot in my family. I come from a Christian family, a conservative family, and um, I have an older brother that is very, I would say, very learned in theology. I think I learn a lot from him, and uh, he likes the same topics that I do, and so we like to discuss these things and kind of send articles back and forth. I would say that my husband's family um, likes this kind of stuff too. Thankfully, I married into a very conservative family. My family is very conservative. And so I feel for people that are in a different position than me that maybe are the only Christian in your family or the only conservative in your family and you constantly feel like you're on the defense or you're walking on eggshells. I know that's very difficult. I will say I do disagree. I disagree with my parents on some things theologically, and we have had some heated conversations about those particular topics. And so it's not that they're less religious than me or less Christian than me, but we disagree on some things. And so I have had arguments and, but I like that. I, I don't mind the debates and the arguments and it's fine. We know that we love each other, but, um, of course, I, I feel for you. If that's if that's not the case, I know that's very difficult. I would encourage you to get community outside of your family so that you can feel like you're not crazy and that you are not alone. Um, thoughts on homeschooling. I think homeschooling is great. If you can do it, if you have the time and the energy and the commitment and the ability to homeschool your kids, then I think that that's an awesome option. I mean, we know the public school system, there are many awesome public school teachers, by the way, and there's some great public schools, but there's a lot of the public school system that we know, unfortunately, is indoctrinating our kids and isn't providing them with the same value system that we would at home. And so if your next option is homeschooling, then I think absolutely more power to you. Um, what do you think about Todd White? So I will answer that question by saying you should watch the documentary American Gospel if you have not already. That is what I think of uh, Todd White. Okay, what is the number one lesson you have learned since the start of Relatable? I don't know if it's a lesson so much, although I do think I've learned a lot about um, about podcasting, of course, and talking and research and all of that. But the thing that I have learned is that people, especially I would say young people, have a hunger for theology that the church is not feeding. And I think that we belittle millennials and young people by saying, well, they don't, they don't really want the deep stuff. Like they don't really want to talk about predestination. They don't really want to talk about the five solas. Like they don't really want to talk about the countercultural stuff. They want to hear that you're enough. They want to hear that you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. They want to hear the easy stuff. They want to hear the trendy stuff. They want to feel comfortable in their sin. And, um, 
be able to quote have a relationship with Jesus but not really be able to change their life and so we've got to make everything really trendy and uh really superficial in order to attract young people to the truth or what these people call truth. And I've just found that I don't think that's true. Of course, that's true of, of some people, but in starting my Theology Mondays and having a theology podcast each week, those are by far my most popular podcast, by far. Like if I look at my analytics, the vast majority of my top podcasts or my top downloads are from my theological podcast and the emails that I get and the messages that I get are almost always about those podcasts. And so that tells me something. That tells me that there is a void that is not being very well filled. And I certainly can't fill it on my own. That is not being very well filled uh, for theological truth for young people. There's just, there's too much deceit out there. It's pervasive in this God of self world that we live in. And there's not enough truth. So that's probably the number one thing I've learned. It's encouraging and discouraging at the same time that there are so many people who are eager to hear truth and not enough people that are willing to speak it. And I don't want to sound like I'm some vigilante here or like, I don't want to sound like, oh, people just aren't as brave as me because that's not true. I happen to have a platform and I've always loved these subjects. And so I'm talking about them. It's a very average and normal thing to do that a lot of other people, if they had the same opportunities, would do as well. Um, but it's, I mean, it's like what the Bible says, that the laborers are few. And it's very true. And you obviously don't have to have a podcast in order to talk about theological truth. You can do that in your job. You can talk about theological truth with your friends. But that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned, that there are a lot of people hungry for the gospel, hungry to know what the Bible actually says about things, not just what some random teacher says. And there aren't enough people that are willing to talk about it because we are too scared of being called a bigot. We're too scared of being called a bigot. That's that's one of our biggest problems. So I would say that that is probably one of the biggest lessons. Uh, what's your favorite Bible verse? I really like Psalm uh, 137, or is it Psalm? Now I'm, oh gosh, my favorite Bible verse, and I don't remember. I, I think it's Psalm 37, 1 through 7. Yeah, Psalm 37, 1 through 7. Be not envious of the wrongdoers. I really like that. And that is, of course, the popular verse. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But that really the whole chapter in that chunk verses one through seven is really good for people who are not just anxious, but are worried about how the world is going and feeling like evil is overcoming good. That's a really good reminder. And so that's why I love Psalm 37, one through seven. Okay, I think that is it for today. I hope you guys have a great Friday. I hope you guys have a great weekend and I will see you here on Monday. We're gonna talk about deconversion and a lot of you have asked me about that and I'm excited to talk about it. So I will see you guys then.